Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. Um, It's good to see all of you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're in the middle of a series uh, out of the book of or the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, a number of churches located in a geographical region that would be modern day Turkey uh, about some of the issues they were facing in their church. We're coming to the end of the series. We have just a couple more weeks. But today, uh, being Palm Sunday, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, We're going to skip ahead a little bit for today and the next week, and then the week after Easter, we're going to go back and finish up at the beginning of chapter 6. But if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, we're going to be at the end of chapter 6 today, beginning in verse 11 and reading through verses 14. And then I also put in your worship folder a a selection from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, just to kind of highlight the theme that we're going to go after this morning, which is boasting in the cross. So let's read this passage of Scripture together. As we come to the word this morning, uh, Paul writing to the Galatians, beginning in verse 11 through verse 14 of of Galatians 6. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then another letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian churches, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Excuse me, it goes back to verse 22, actually. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Today, as we've already said, is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday in the liturgical calendar on which we celebrate the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem which we read in our call to worship this morning. Um, Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover was a feast celebrated each year by the Jewish community as a commemoration of the the event that we're reading about in our community Bible reading right now in the book of Exodus. God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and the decisive factor in that deliverance was uh, the curse of the firstborn son. God said, I'm going to come, and because... Because Pharaoh has been stubborn and has refused to do what I've told him to do, I'm coming and I'm going to kill every firstborn son in Egypt. But here's what you do, my people, Israel. If you take a goat and you slaughter the goat and you take the blood and you put the blood of the, of the, of the lamb on the, the doorpost of your house, then I will pass over and, and the judgment will not come into, into the house. You see, so the, the, the disciples and Jesus have come into Jerusalem as Jews to celebrate this feast of Passover. They, they eat a meal together, which is the Passover meal. 
But Jesus has come for an even greater purpose, and that was to offer himself as the true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We know this was his intention because in the Gospels, we were shown by the Gospel writers, he keeps telling his disciples about what awaits him in Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem, and let me explain to you what, what's going to happen there. When we get there, that he's trying to prepare them so they're not caught off guard. So he says, when we, when he, we get there, they're going to arrest me, they're going to try me, they're going to kill me, uh, and then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And, and Luke even tells it this way in Luke 9.51, he says, Jesus, it's a very decisive phrase in Luke's gospel that sets the tone for the rest of the gospel. In, in chapter 9, Luke says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was unwavering and unrelenting. He was resolute in his desire to go to the city where they would kill him. He knew that was what was coming. And it's significant that we say that because all along the road, if you read the Gospels, it's, it's almost comical because all along the road as they're traveling to Jerusalem, his friends are trying to persuade him to take another route. They're saying, why don't we not go there right now? You know, they're pretty angry with you. And they've proven absolutely intolerant of all this talk of a cross and sufferings and death. And there's one particular point when Peter, being Peter, he has to take Jesus aside and he rebukes him and he, he tries to give Jesus a little theology lesson. And, and, and basically it's, it's this. He, you know, he says, Messiahs sit on thrones, they don't hang on crosses. You know, Peter to Jesus, Jesus, Messiahs, you're Messiah. And Messiahs are all about power and glory, not suffering and shame. And Jesus finally has to look Peter in the eye and say in, in rather harsh language, get behind me, Satan. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Mark 8:33. You see, Jesus's friends, here's the reality. Jesus's friends wanted a leader to follow who would make their dreams come true and make their lives what they wanted their lives to be. They wanted a teacher who would give them good advice. They didn't want a savior who would have to die on a cross to save them from their sins. They wanted a leader. They wanted a teacher. And I would just say to you that the temptation is alive and well in our culture today, that people admire Jesus for lots of reasons. He's a great teacher and his teachings are, are tremendous. Or, wow, what an amazing man and leader he was. But we, in the same way the disciples were, tend to be intolerant of the reality that he is not just a teacher and not just a leader. He is a savior who has come to save us from our sins by offering himself in our place. And Paul, in writing this letter to the Galatians, he's dealing with this very thing. This very thing. This is the root of the problem in the Galatians. It's their intolerance of the cross. And so what he's doing in this letter that we've been going through together is he's, he's continually bringing the Galatians back to the reality of Jesus crucified. He's bringing them back to the cross. And so I want to read from chapter 3 in Galatians, but it's the message, which is Eugene Peterson's translation. It's absolutely amazing, but just to kind of bring us back and remind us of what we've been seeing here, here's the way Eugene Peterson translates from Galatians, the end of Galatians 2, the beginning of Galatians 3. Just listen to this paragraph. Here's Paul writing to the Galatians. I tried keeping the rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work, so I quit being a lawman so that I could become God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
it is, is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. You crazy Galatians. Did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened to you. Listen to this phrase. For it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what God has begun. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? See, Paul says, you know, here's what's happened. You no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your life. And if you look at verse 11 here in this section of the, the, the letter that we're dealing with today, Paul says, he says, um, see with what large letters I'm writing to you. And, and what, what there's some conjecture about what Paul means. But here's my theory. And, and really, the reason I have this theory is because it's kind of funny. And every, you know, every opportunity I have to be kind of funny, I take it because I'm typically not very funny. But do you have? Do, you, do, do any of you have a friend who emails you and, and it's like Jonathan and I were laughing. We have a friend who sent out a couple emails recently, you know, recently. And he and she said, did, did, did she realize the cap lock key is down? Because the whole email is like in like cap locks and you feel like they're screaming at you know, they're screaming at me. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Does anybody you know, with me? Like, you know, you, cause you can't communicate tone and email. So people like bold cap underline ah! and they're screaming at you. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying. I'm writing, look at what big letters I'm writing you. This is really important. What I'm getting at right now, I'm trying to scream through this parchment at you that this is the thing I've written you about. This is why I'm writing. This is what's the, the most important. If you don't hear anything else I say, here's what I want you to hear. And so Paul's pushed down the cap flock key to add emphasis. And that's the root of all that has gone wrong with the Galatians. And so this morning as we come, I want to say to you, if you're struggling in your relationship with God, if you feel numb or cold or dead or if you're full of fear and anxiety like me, if there's no power, then you can trace it back to this. Do you have the cross in clear view? Is the cross of Jesus at the center of your life? And so at the beginning of Holy Week, it's fitting that we take some time to talk about the cross. And we're going to do that in three headings this morning. First, the cross, three things. First, the offense of the cross. Secondly, the boasting in the cross. And thirdly, the power of the cross. And those are the three things we're going to look at. Those are the three points in the outline that I've given you. And so let's just take a few minutes to walk through this together. Beginning with this, the offense of the cross. You see, and what I'm getting at here is this is hard. What we're going to talk about this morning is hard. Keeping the cross. If the, if the cross is central to what we understand Christianity to be, then something about keeping it at the center of our life and keeping one another focused on it it's very difficult, and so we've got some problem solving to do this morning. Okay? Now, throughout his letter, Paul's been talking about how he's being persecuted because of what he calls the offense of the cross. If you, if you have a Bible and you want to look back at Galatians 5, 11 through 12, or even here in verse 12, he says that, that his opponents are not being persecuted because they preach circumcision. But in Galatians 5, 11 and 12, here's what Paul says. Paul says, but, but if brothers, I still preach circumcision why am i still being persecuted in that case the offense of the cross has been removed so paul mentions this phrase the offense of the cross and we got to ask the question what does he mean by that 
What is the offense of the cross? Why is Paul being persecuted? Because he's preaching the cross. And that's one of the reasons why I included this passage from 1 Corinthians for you this morning. So if you'll look there in your outline, or on the, on, on the other side of your outline, you'll see Paul begins to meditate on, on how the cross is a stumbling block. And he says it this way at the top of that passage in verse 22. He says, the Jews demand signs and the Greek seek wisdom. And what he, what he means by that is he's, he's saying, you know, these two, these two parties of people that he's ministering to, they have very different expectations. The Jews love power. They, they, they loved miraculous signs. They loved, they loved power. They were eager and desiring for power. Greeks, it wasn't so much power. They valued wisdom. And so in, in either of those currencies, you know, there was a way of making a name for yourself by tapping into the expectations of the culture around you. And for the Jews, it was power. For the Greeks, it was wisdom. And Paul says here, he says, but, but Jesus doesn't fit into either of those categories. That's why people didn't get him. They wondered about him. They thought this guy's strange. The Jews did because they thought, you know, Messiah is going to be this powerful guy who's going to come. Show us a sign, Jesus. Raise people from the dead. He's going to come. He's going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. And he's going to set up the throne of David and rule over the world. And he, he didn't come that way. It wasn't power. It was weakness. He had no place to lay his head. He was born in a feeding trough for animals. And it just didn't happen that way. But but the Greeks, you know, the Greeks, it was wisdom. It was this just intelligent, you know, and, and here was Jesus and, and the guys that he didn't pick the academics to follow him. He picked fishermen. And, a lot, but, you know, just uneducated. And, and man, that, what you're saying makes no sense. It doesn't fit into my categories. And Paul is using this to make a point about something inside of us that longs to be validated and associated with maybe power, maybe wisdom, but but these cur- cultural currencies that give you a sense of of belonging and identity and, and, and wanting. And then by way of illustrating what he's trying to say, he goes on in that passage, you know, the Greeks want wisdom, the Jews want power, the cross is neither of those things, it's foolishness and it's weakness. And then he says, This is the way it works. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards and not many were powerful and not many were noble. But God chose, and here's the categories, the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, and even the things that are not. And what Paul's saying is, is, this is the way the gospel works. The gospel comes not to the powerful and not to the wise. It comes to the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, the things that are not. But why? And Paul answers the question, why does the gospel work this way? And it is this, it's to prove that salvation is by sheer grace. God's salvation in Jesus doesn't come to the most qualified. It doesn't come to those who work hard or follow the rules or perform the right ceremonies or have the right pedigree. It's grace. It is love to the unlovely, to the undeserving, to the unqualified. You see, the cross, the cross screams God's love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. But it doesn't water down how costly we are to love. We are overrun with sin and we're powerless to do anything to save ourselves. We are guilty, we're weak, we're deserving of God's wrath. And yet, Jesus' work on our behalf, his life of perfect obedience to the Father's will and his sacrifice of himself on the cross it's our only hope. We can't do it ourselves. 
It can't come any other way except through the cross. And what's interesting is that's why the cross offends. The cross is offensive because it stands against every self-salvation project we have. This is is the offense. The only way you get it is by admitting your sin and your weakness. In other words, there has to be, in order to come in order to come into the salvation that Jesus has provided, there has to be a self-diagnosis that is unfavorable. And if you've lived any amount of time in your life, you know that that is the one thing the human heart can't do. We spend all of our emotional energy toward the opposite, proving that we are good and nice and respectable people. No one readily admits their sin, and nobody enjoys being corrected. And there stands the cross. And because the cross is right there in the center, what what we're learning is is that those two things should be the most natural things in the world. If the cross is to be at the center of our life and our self-understanding and our community as a church, then we should be able to be honest about our sin and be quick to repent. And we should expect that we will need to be corrected and to ask for it and to rejoice in it. And I'm here to tell you, we went to the beach this weekend and on the way home, my wife had to look across the car at me and say, you're terrible you're sensitive. If I say one thing, you blow up and get all pouty and whiny. Because there's something in the human heart we can't, that these are the very things we can't do. So we've got some problem solving to do. And we have to start right here. We have to start by knowing that no matter who you are, no matter who you are, the cross is offensive. Our hearts don't like it. I mean, just take these categories, politically and morally liberal people, right? If, if, you, if you're toward the side of being politically and morally liberal, then, then politically and morally liberal people typically believe in the goodness of humanity, that the problems in the world are the product of structural evils. You know, and, and the, the goal is to liberate people out of those things. And the cross says, no, 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 that's not right. And so the cross is offensive. But if you're politically or morally conservative, Conservative people believe in humanity's sinfulness, but also they believe in their individual goodness. But the cross says to a moral conservative, no, 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 that's not it either. You know, the hymn we just sang a few minutes ago, uh, Isaac Watts says it this way, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Now, what's he saying in that verse? What does he mean, the hopes of? I held before. And if you remember, I read a quote for you from David Brainerd, who's a missionary in New England about the time that Jonathan Edwards was preaching up there. In his journal, he he wrote, and it's just such a great little quote. I want to say it to you again. He wrote of his own struggle with this. And he says, when I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, words and actions. And I thought I must be very seriously religious. Though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserved nothing. Now listen to this phrase. He says, yet I still harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. I thought that through my repenting and praising him and seeking him, I could make good steps towards heaven. I had a secret, I had a secret hope of recommending myself. You see, Paul is confronting the Galatians because they've moved off. They've moved beyond the gospel and back to law-keeping, trying to earn their justification by following all the rules, trying to perfect themselves through the flesh. And our hearts are constantly doing the same thing. That's what we've learned here, that we're constantly losing the gospel because our flesh is so offended by the implications of the cross. 
We have to know that. You have to know that. You have to know that you're constantly being tempted to take your eyes off the cross and to fix your gaze on your own good works. You have to know. You have to know that your heart harbors secret hopes of gaining acceptance with God through your own efforts. And we've got to constantly be bringing one another back through the offense of the cross to the reality of what the cross says. The cross has got to be at the center. But it's offensive and so it's hard. So secondly then, so how do you know what's the test of whether the cross is at the center? How do you know if you're making progress? How, how does all of this work? What does it mean to boast? And here's what Paul says. Here's the test. Here's how you know. In verse 14, and here's where I want to camp for the rest of the time we have this morning. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the test is, do you boast? Now, that word boast there in verse 14 it's an interesting word. It means to take pride in. And I thought, you know, now think about that phrase. We say that all the time, don't we? To take pride in. What does that mean? What does it mean to take pride in something? You know, it means that I derive my sense of value or worth from that thing. The same word boast here is translated in Paul's letter to glory or to rejoice. And so I just want to say it this way this morning. Your boast, as we think about this, your boast is the thing you've put your heart's deepest desire for happiness and meaning and purpose in. It's your ultimate hope, your glory. It's the thing that if you don't have that thing, I'm nothing. I need this thing. Your boast is the thing that is most central to your understanding of who you are and why you're valuable. It is the source of your greatest joy. The thing you rejoice over more than anything else. It's the thing that has the power to bring you incredible joy and incredible sadness. It's the center of your emotional life. And so here's some of the diagnostics that I spent the last... I mean, you know, it's hard wrestling through this stuff because I have to, you know... I, I spend 20 hours with it. You spend 30, min- 30 minutes with it, you know. But, but here are the diagnostics that I've been going through all week. You know, what do I spend the most energy pursuing and thinking about and talking about? You know, where does the conversation most naturally turn when I'm with uh, people? You know, the free time in my day, what gets the most time? When I have to choose between options due to lack of time or energy, what do I choose? What's that thing that, that, that I always get to? That's my boast. And the, the original setting of this language is really important. When Paul talks about what it means to boast, he's tapping into something that people of this time and this age would have understood very clearly. And I don't know, anybody anybody flipped through the channels last night and saw that Braveheart was on you know, TNT last night? I don't know what it is about my, my, my man's heart. You know, I flipped through and I just, all of a sudden, like, <gasps> Braveheart's on TV. It's just something, I don't know, you know? It's a good movie. Uh, but my favorite parts, my favorite parts of those movies is when the men are lined up for battle and they're all freaking out and they're scared and they're, you know, we're not going to, what are we, we are, we're going home. We're not going to fight for these guys. And here comes William Wallace and I'm still not sure where they got face paint back in the 11th century, but somehow they've got their faces painted and they ride along and he begins to, do you remember what he begins to do, right? You know, we're Scots and we're going to go and we're just going to wipe, you know, we're going to, we're going to rip their hearts out and all the men, Rah! you know, and he, all of a sudden they're screaming and now they're ready to go and die you know what is that that's a ritual boast that's part of the the original setting that paul's tapping into you know when when you're when you're geared up for battle and the men are there and the general steps forward or the king steps forward or the man that is looked to steps forward and he begins to say we're you know we're powerful we're strong 
Those guys are wimpy. We're fighting for freedom. We can do this. Let's go. And, you know, or the coach before the big game or whatever it might be. The way that, you know, it, it's the way you go out into the world in strength. That there's something about us that we need affirmation. We need to know we're love worthy. If you've ever been to a performance of some kind or a baseball game or something, you know, where, where somebody performs perfectly or, or the person, you know, hits the walk off home run and the crowd leaps to its feet in thunderous applause. You ever, I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Those, those times? Every human being needs to walk around with that in their heart. You were made for that. We were all thirsty for that kind of praise and acclamation and honor. We need it to move out into the world in strength and do battle. It's not something to be ashamed of or a dysfunction we should try to overcome. We are built to walk around with that thunderous applause going off in our hearts all the time. That's what that boasting is. But Paul says that the motivation of the Judaizers is the desire to boast in their accomplishments or in the number of converts they can win, etc. What's motivating the Judaizers is the desire, if you look there in verse 12, to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to be well thought of. They want people to look at what they've accomplished and to think of them as successful and smart and talented and devoted. But the problem was that they thought they could meet this emotional need that's true of every human heart by gaining the approval of others. And that's what we're all doing. That's what we're all doing. Every soul in this room is looking to something to cheer itself and to get cheers from other people and to get its confidence from that thing. You know, I'm a good father or a good mother. Look at my kids. Or I'm a good person. You know, look at my moral record. This is why I'm love worthy. This is my glory. This is my significance. This is my value. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter what your boast is whether it's people thinking you're a good parent or being good at what you do for a living or success or wealth or material possessions, if you have those things, you'll be arrogant and full of anxiety and afraid of losing them. And if you don't lose, you know, and if you do lose them, you'll fall apart. I mean, if you do what the Judaizers are doing here, you'll make an absolute wreck of things. You'll be terribly insecure, constantly comparing yourself to others. And the worst thing is, is that you'll constantly using people. You'll be constantly using people to meet your own emotional needs. That's what Paul's accusing these guys of doing. They want, they, they want to circumcise you so they can boast in your flesh. But you see, lurking behind everything we're talking about, what we need, what we're really looking for is God's approval. We need the approval of the one who's made us. That's what we've been saying in this series. We're looking for a righteousness, and there's only one way to get it. There's only one way to get it, and that is to boast in the cross and not in our performance. Paul says, far be it from me to ever boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott, who, who's a commentator and writer about this, this book in Galatians, he says, the cross for Paul was not something to escape, but the object of his boasting. The truth is that we cannot boast in ourselves and in the cross simultaneously. If we boast in ourselves and in our ability to save ourselves, we shall never boast in the cross and in the ability of Christ crucified to save us. We have to choose. He goes on to say, only if we have humbled ourselves as hell-deserving sinners shall we give up boasting of ourselves, fly to the cross for salvation, and spend the rest of our days glorying in the cross. See, we have to say, this is going to be the center. This thing, the cross of Jesus is going to be the center of my life. This is going to be what defines me. The cross is proof that I am love worthy. The cross is my glory. 
my success, my significance, my boast. That's what Paul's saying. You see, he understood something, didn't he? Paul understood something about the cross because, you see, the love of God revealed in the cross secures us in a way that no other love can because, because every other love is based upon our performance. Every other affirmation is depending upon making the grade or making the shot at the end of the game or preaching a good sermon or doing a good job. Perform well and you will be applauded, but not the cross. The cross is the exact opposite. The cross says you're offensive, you've failed, you've blown it, you've disqualified yourself, but you're loved anyway. God God's love is given to you, but not because you deserve it or earned it in any way. It is a gift that is based not on your performance, but on the performance of another. The cross teaches us that we are both sinners and justified. That we, though we are full of wickedness and rebellion, we have the praise of God. We have fame with God. Because on the cross, Jesus, the eternal Son of God who left heaven and angels praise for earth. The one who deserved only praise forever and ever was rejected by his father so that we who deserve to be rejected might have the praise of God. And when he was hanging upon the cross, we read it just a minute ago, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he heard in his soul the words, depart from me. So that we could hear in our soul, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, the minute you begin to understand that in Christ you have God's applause, that because of Jesus, heaven applauds, the thunderous applause that you've been looking for all your life is there to be had and can, it can go off in your heart all day, every day as you walk through your life. The minute you begin to understand that, that you have God's praise, his thunderous affirmation and acclamation, but through Christ alone and not your performance, then you can move out into the world in strength. And Paul says it this way, if you look there in verse 14, that by boasting in the cross, he uses this phrase, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And what does that mean? We, Matthew Henderson and I were talking this weekend and he was telling me about what it's like to have to get up early to go to school. And he said, you know, and he used the phrase and it just caught me. He said, you know, for the first 20 minutes of the drive to school, I'm absolutely dead to the world. I'm dead to the world. Nothing, you know. We're going through tolls. Dad's, my dad's handing me you know, Twinkies for breakfast or whatever it is. Sorry, Tammy. I, Tammy's kids don't eat Twinkies. I need to go probably like homemade brand muffins of some kind, right? Dad's handing me breakfast back there. I'm just completely oblivious. I have not because I'm, I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired. He, he's saying, you know, it was just funny the way he described it. Some, his sleepiness is so profound, so all-defining that he's completely unaffected by anything happening around him. He's just dead to the world. Paul's saying... That the cross can come into your life in such a way that nothing phases you at all. That the world no longer has any claim on you. That what people think no longer matters. You'd be completely dead to all of it. Um, I had an experience. I don't think I've told this story. If I have, forgive me. But I, I need to pull it out every now and then. Because I had this experience at my church in Lakeland where I was an associate before I came here you know, with this group of people to be the pastor here. Um, but I, I was supposed to preach in the um, youth group one Wednesday night. And because my schedule got out of control and I have a hard time saying no, I got overwhelmed and I went to the guys and said, can I please have the night off? And they were very kind and said, sure, absolutely, we'll cover for you, no big deal. The next Sunday morning I was walking through the hallways in our church and one of the teenagers who I hardly knew came up to me and tapped, kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, hey, aren't you the guy we booed in youth group on Wednesday night? I said, excuse me? 
He said, yeah, 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 yeah. We booed and hissed you on Wednesday night in the youth group. So these guys, so I go to the youth guys who are working for me. I'm, I'm supervising them. Um, guys, can you tell me what this is about? And they, <laughs> they start cracking up. It seems that they put my, they took the picture off the website and put it on the big screen for the youth group, took a skunk, a little skunk, and a big thumbs down that says, you stink. And they led the youth group. They said, you know, Drew's a pastor here. We love him, but he stood us up tonight. So, uh, in, in lieu of that, we're going to, we're going to boo and hiss him. So on the count of three, all the teenagers, ready? One, two, three. Mary Catherine, were you there? Were you there, Mary Catherine? She's hiding her face in shame. You should be ashamed. One, two, three. Boo! And my favorite is one, two, three. And I have to be honest with you, there was a time in my life where I would have been absolutely mortified by that. But we had the greatest time laughing about that. Because you see, as you as we get, they were trying to they were trying to accomplish sanctification in my life, and I appreciate that. Um, they were, because you see, as you become more and more conversant in the gospel, then the cheers don't take you too high, and the boos don't cause you to despair. Because the cross, I'm both humbled and secured at the same time. I'm dead. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to the applause, and I'm dead to the boos. Because in the cross. I'm both humbled and secured at the same time. Now, just to close, I just want to take each of those, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Taking each of those, the cross humbles us. Brennan Manning, who I, is a writer that I absolutely love, and I would recommend that you get anything that he's written, but he describes this kind of person who's been humbled. He says, and I'm just going to read because it's so good, I, don't, I, can't, I can't improve upon it. He says, a poor self-image reflect, reveals a lack of humility. Feelings of insecurity, inadequacy, inferiority, and self-hatred rivet our attention on ourselves. Humble men and women do not have a low opinion of themselves. They have no opinion of themselves. The heart of humility lies in an undivided attention to God, a fascination with His beauty, and a de-selfing of our plans, projects, ambitions, and soul. Humility is manifested in an indifference to our intellectual, emotional, and physical well-being and a carefree disregard of the image we present. No longer concerned with appearing to be good, we can move freely in the mystery of who we really are, aware of the sovereignty of God and our absolute insufficiency, and yet moved by the spirit of radical self-acceptance without self-concern. Self-acceptance without self-concern. He goes on, he says, such a person is without pretense and free from any sense of spiritual superiority. The awareness of their spiritual emptiness does not disconcert them, neither overly sensitive to criticism nor inflated by praise. They recognize their brokenness, acknowledge their gifts, and refuse to take themselves seriously. See, that's what those guys were helping me do. But if that's true, if the cross humbles us, then, then humble people then are free to be honest and transparent about their sins and weaknesses and to make confession and repentance a lifestyle. I mean, that's the application. And I just want to say to you, we want to lead you out in this as leaders. We don't want to make excuses. We don't want to blame shift. We want to own our sin and dare to claim that God loves us in spite of ourselves. And to make confession and repentance a lifestyle, to be honest and transparent. And not hide and evade and maneuver. But you see the cross. Also the cross secures us by proving. That we even that even though we are hell deserving sinners. That Jesus was willing to die to save us because he loves us. You see the goal is that we would come to know and rely on. To have confidence in his love. And this confidence cuts against our drivenness. And the constant need to be doing more to prove ourselves. So Brendan Manning again. Again because I can't improve upon it. He says. This type of person wastes little time in introspection, navel-gazing, looking in the mirror, and being anxious about their own spiritual growth. Their self-acceptance without self-concern 
is anchored in the acceptance of Jesus and their struggle to be faithful. They fasten their attention on God. He says, when the farmer arises in the morning unrecoiled, or excuse me, unreconciled to getting out of bed, he feels no anxiety that he has wasted time through his sleep. Au contraire, he is confident that the seed has continued to grow during the night. So too, the spiritual person does not fret or flap over opportunities missed, does not hammer himself for not working hard enough, and does not have a panic attack wondering whether he's received grace in vain. I love this phrase. He lives in quiet confidence that God is working. So the cross secures us. And secure people are willing to face persecution to speak the truth in love. They're willing to receive correction. And, and Paul's modeling something very important for us in this letter to the Galatians. He's telling us there are two ways, that, there are two different ministry models that we can adopt. Number one, we can just flatter one another in the name of building self-esteem. And I love the way it, somebody said it. Or number two, we can, in, we, can, we can, a ministry model of how we grow into sanctification, we can just commit to insulting one another on a regular basis with the gospel of grace. And the problem is, in our culture and in the church today, nobody's upset and nobody's offended. Nobody, nobody's wrestling with the offense of the cross and nobody's lives being changed. And here's what you have to watch in me. Just know this about me. We want to grow a church. And to grow a church, you need people. You need to attract people. You need to keep those people. So there's a huge temptation for me to tell you what you want to hear and not tell you what you need to hear. Because you might decide to go somewhere else. You need something entirely different from me. We need this is this is the kind of people we need to be a humble people who can readily confess our sins and 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 go out in a lifestyle of repentance and confession and secure people who are willing to face persecution to speak the truth in love. So how does that happen? And just to conclude, I want to echo what Jonathan said last week, that we have to be a people who begin to take seriously the means that God has given us by which we come by which the cross is, you know, is brought back into the very center of our lives. Read the scriptures. First Peter, we read this week, it says that the gospel that we read about in the scriptures, that the angels in heaven have longed to look into it, and we have it. Don't neglect the reading of the scripture. As we come to this table this morning, and, and Jesus is portrayed to us as crucified, there is, this is a means of grace. This is the way by which Jesus instituted the cross be at the center of, of our life together as a community of people. Don't neglect to suffer. Don't neglect the community of the saints and what we're to be for one another. I mean, that's the application. There are means that God has given us by which the cross can stay in the center and we can begin to learn to be people that boast in the cross and not in our own, our own performances and can, can experience the power of the cross to make us bold and humble at the same time for his glory. So let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to come to this table this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you so much that in your love you sent your son Jesus to die upon the cross for, to save us from our sins. And Jesus, thank you so much that you know our hearts so well that you did not leave us without practices by which the cross could remain at the center of our life. That you have given us this supper that we can partake of together. That through our participation in it that we might, that we might see you beautifully portrayed before our eyes as crucified. And that we might wrestle our hearts into submission past the offense of the cross to come to see that yet we are, though we are sinners, that Christ died for us. And that the applause of heaven is ours if we just put our faith in Jesus. So come and, and do what you promised to do as we come to this table together. Draw near to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That would be to your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
how could it be that a king would die for his subjects? How could it be that the way uh, to thunderous applause is not in uh, good works, but in, but in the confession, uh, Lord, save me? Um, if your faith is in Jesus, then know that in the benediction is the promise that you go having your father's face. Because his face turned away from Jesus on the cross, his face is now turned towards you to bless you, to be attentive to you, to see and hear and remember and promise and come down to work. So receive the benediction this morning, knowing that in it is the promise that the cross, though it is offensive, if it becomes your boast, it can be the ultimate source of joy and power and strength. So go out into the world uh, with, with knowing that you go with the Father's blessing and favor. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.